This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, there are no rules, there are no holds, there is no ring, it's a geek out. I don't know where that stuff comes from. I don't know where that stuff comes well, from. Well, if you try to figure out where it does come from, it'll probably dry up. But oh. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 256 of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm James and I'm joined by Tom. Hello, Tom. Hello, how are you? Not bad. It feels like an absolute eon since we've recorded together. It's, a, it's definitely a while. Um, I, I know that. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm just glad to be here. I know. I know Trevor's still um, got that exclusion order, so he's not allowed to go near a microphone for the next twelve months. But apart from that, hey. Uh, well, Trevor seems to. <laughs> I don't know. It, it depends when there is a subject that he wants to talk about. You see. So generally speaking, I've, I've got a little list here of everything that I know Trevor really enjoys talking about. It, and it also happens to be a list of all the things that really annoy Trevor. And <laughs> whenever I want him to come on the show, it's a case of saying oh we're going to be discussing this next week do you fancy it <laughs> no uh, we, we miss you trevor and i'm sure the listeners do as well but uh, but you certainly you just got tom and i instead so i i, I hope that's um well, I was going to say by way of compensation, but I think that's probably <laughs> quite an arrogant statement, really. It's like well, it's, it's, there is there is no way that any two men combined could equal one of Trevor. <laughs> no, it would take far more than that. <laughs> oh, Lord, yes, oh, Lord, yes. But this last week, I have been in this room watching watching lots of DVDs and working quite hard. Mm. Um, although that said, I don't think it would be fair to talk to you about Underworld. Um, oh goodness, <laughs> I haven't watched that for a very long time. I've got got about three memories of that. I think it's uh, the Gadafrian seal for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. I am Michael Wisher dressed up totally unrecognisably and mm-hmm. really bad CSO. Yeah, consistent CSO and reuse of, of shots. Uh, it, it seems to characterise Underworld. Although there's a great story fighting to get out, and of course Louise Jameson is just utterly heavenly. Of course, um, <laughs> um, I, I, I won't bore you by trying to pick apart the censor rights. And I think, and the, the, the other DVD that I'm looking at right now is Legopolis, and oh. we did our work on that last oh, week. I that think. was one of the best podcasts that I've ever edited, listeners. I have to say, <laughs> I've never heard such a spirited discussion about Legopolis. It's it's normally quite a well, it's not a story that really generates a huge amount of opinion, and certainly not strong opinion one way or the other. And yet, I think mm. between the four of you last week, you managed to probably air or voice every single possible opinion it's possible to have <laughs> about Legopolis. Well, yeah, it's the sort of spirited discussion you see about half past ten in a pub in the, in the inner city in the UK. <laughs> no, but I, I wouldn't have actually helped, you know, because I mean, I, I really like Legopolis and. It doesn't mean that I disagree with with Stephen or Ian. I actually think their points are perfectly valid. It is slow. It's not representative of the Fourth Doctor eras at all. And yet there's something about it. And uh, I I think it's because it's a culmination of season 18, really. And and, and Tom Baker and the Fourth Doctor suffered by John Nathan Turner coming in saying, I am going to change this show. And as a result, there was no way there was ever going to be a happy comedic buoyant departure story and uh, I, I think the fact that we got Logopolis given those circumstances was an absolute godsend and it is something that after I edited that podcast last week I, I, I am going to go back and watch it again because you, you stirred oh, up the interest again and I can't wait to see it to be honest 
Well, it, it, it's it, well. This is. I think we we talked briefly before, and it, it's not just the end of the, t- the fourth Doctor's era. It's the end of Doctor Who as we know it up to that point, mm. um, because the show is never the same again after that. You know, it, it becomes about costumes. It becomes about something quite other than it had been between 1963 and 1981. Exactly. It became about John Nathan Turner's style of television. And uh, oh. I, I, I think, you know, you can argue to say that, yeah, it never, it never was the same again, and that's a good thing. Or you could argue and say it was actually a bad thing and eventually led to its death, <laughs> you know, hmm. uh, t- 10 years later or thereabouts, or not even not even that long, really. But, yeah, it, it, it's certainly a, a watershed story, Logopolis. And I think people should go back and watch it and watch it in a bit of context watch Keeper of Trark and watch Castro of Alva and, oh absolutely uh, the tone the stylistic way that it's made is totally consistent whether or not you say oh. it's a good decision or a bad decision to make it so melancholic and so oh I mean I, I think the word funereal was mentioned quite a lot yeah, um, but absolutely. I mean that, that's a deliberate choice and you can tell that not only by the way it's directed and the slow pace of the story but also the music the score has, has never been so you know I mean you could just imagine a coffin rolling slowly into a pyre and burning to that score oh. you know which I, I think is quite a dramatic statement to make at the end of a of a doctor's era for it to be laid on the viewer so thickly that this is a death and you should be mourning, you should be grieving. You know, I, I think that's a brave decision. Personally, it's not one I have a major problem with. I mean, Logopolis isn't my favourite episode. Season 18 is not my favourite season. But I, I don't have a problem with it. I'd much rather watch this and say, oh, Underworld or The Sensorites. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is it. I've got The, the Sensorites to do. And there's something in the back of my head which is saying this is possibly the longest-winded and most dull Doctor Who story of all time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where I've acquired that opinion from. It might just be something I'm, I'm making up, but I've got it in my head that it's not particularly good. I seem good. to remember, and I, I could be wrong, but I think I've discussed The Sensorites with you before, and I have a feeling that mm. you'd watched about... I think it was three episodes all in one hit. I still think classic Doctor Who, almost in any era, is much easier to digest, is much easier to consume and enjoy if you watch one episode at a time. Yeah, I'm, I'm that kid that gets that would be an A and E with um, his hands stuck in the jar because it's like, oh, I've got to eat it all now. Well, okay, so so, so when Web of Fear came out um, and um, uh, mm, Enemy of the World, mm. I just sat here and went, bang, eat it. And, now. and how was it? I mean, you, you have the um, comparison to eating chocolate. Did you feel sick by the end of it? <laughs> I was only annoyed that there weren't another six episodes. <laughs> no, I fairness. strung those two stories out for about three months. How could you wait? You old Doctor Who, and there was no way I was going to devour it and get it all out the way and out my system inside of you know twenty four hours. I mean, do you? I mean, you know how long that rumor took to actually became a piece of news, a valid piece of news, yeah. and then to blow it yeah. all in one go. No way. <laughs> I just watched it twice, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it again. <laughs> I've watched Enemy, Enemy of the World and Web of Fear twice. Now, I did watch all 12 episodes in a cinema in London, back to back. About two two months ago, I went with Tony, and Toby Hadok was was hosting it. And we, st- we started oh, off at about half past 11 with episode one of Enemy of the World, and we finished up about six o'clock watching episode six of The Web of Fear. That was tough. Wow. 
Yeah, definitely. Oh, there's just I remember a story, um, Fraser Hines tells of being on tour in Australia. I think it was sometime, sometime in the eighties, and they and uh, the host say, and now um, for the first time, or, for, or to honour our guest, um, the War Games, and they they start playing episode one, and Fraser's like, sod this, where's the bar? <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that because he was at the screenings of the two uh, stories I just mentioned as well, and mm. he, Toby, and. Deborah Watling. Yes, it was Deborah Watling, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, we're in the bar as well. And uh, I, I went out to the loo about mm, halfway through and they were there. Mm. So they, they had to get through six episodes without actually watching it. And they, they found they, they, they found work for Idol and put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who would have thought that old actors when presented with a bar would actually strange, use it? Isn't that completely strange? Mm. But, uh, but anyway, rather than, than talk to you listeners about how we watched Doctor Who <laughs> and basically hear me and Tom catch up for the first time in months, you actually did have something you wanted to talk about, didn't you, today? So, listeners, as I'm sure all of you know, um, an ideology is a system of ideas or ideals, um, especially one that forms the basis of a way of life. So it's a it's a set of beliefs characteristic of a social group or of individuals. That's part one. Part two, it's fair to say that no cultural artefact or practice can exist in a vacuum. There have to be things going on around it to help fashion the people and the thing or the practice itself. So the question I'm interested in asking, well, you uh, and James today is, what are the influences that shape Doctor Who? And what, if any, ideological standpoint does Doctor Who promote to its fans? Does that make sense? Yes. Good. I'm glad it makes sense to you. Can you explain it to me now? No. (laughs) (laughs) I can answer the first part of your question, I think, or I have an immediate reaction to that, but I'm not quite certain about the second part. And uh, and obviously I do need to try and make certain I've understood you correctly. I, I think it's fairly true to say that anything you see on television is more or less a reflection of society in some form. Now, that's not to say yes. that you watch Doctor Who because police boxes travel in space and time. That's not the case. <laughs> it's the case of saying that, you know, this is a fantastic programme because you, the viewers, find something like space-time travel fascinating. So that's what we're going to give yes. to you. And I think, therefore, you, you also get a lot of stuff that's going on at the time and I think this is you know it's littered throughout classic Doctor Who you get some people who were involved with the show at the time being very honest and say yes that was actually to reflect my own personal belief or it was to reflect Mm. I don't know um, the miners crisis or whatever there's there's lots of lots of examples Paradise Towers the Sunmakers just just two that spring to mind Mm. The mutants as well. Absolutely, the mutants, yeah. I mean, but I, I also think that Doctor Who fans are incredibly bright and intelligent, and sometimes we see things that aren't really there. You know, humans always seeing patterns and things that aren't there. And uh, <laughs> I, I find that fascinating. There, there were times when I know Barry Letts was asked, you know, you were a Buddhist, did you try and get that into a number of your stories? And the only one I seem to remember that he was completely open and transparent about that was John Pertwee's swan song, Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, Planet mm. of the Spiders, absolutely. Don't yeah. know, though. I mean, you, you look at some of the ide- ideas or ideology of, of Malcolm Hulk, and I, I don't know if it is Malcolm Hulk and Terence Sticks or whether it was solely Malcolm Hulk. Season 7, for example, you know, you always had this kind of pacifist 
theme through it. Is that the kind of stuff that you're talking about in terms of transmitting an ideology through through Doctor Who? Partially, but also not... So yes, I mean, the, the idea of, of, of a recurrent strain, strain of pacifism through season seven is the sort of thing that I mean. But I mean also more insidiously the idea that the lead is, the, is a man, there's a, he's a strong man, the, the, the companion tends to be a smaller, more attractive man. Don't get me wrong, I understand that, you know, that there has to be um, something for the dads in, uh, in John Turner's... Uh, and John Turner's phrasing, but I'm wondering if it doesn't somehow undermine the idea that the men are dominant, the women are somehow trailing around after the Doctor, and only and only occasionally is that. I mean, this is an old argument, um, but only occasionally is that pattern broken by people like Sarah Jane Smith, less so by Leela. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure there's actually a new series companion that prop, that really subverts the stereotype at all. Huh. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, there, there are times when I think the portrayal of the female companion in the classic series is appalling and of course i'm looking at it through 21st century eyes um a quick quick example we saw the two doctors screened at the bfi last year with oh. eric saywood and one particular oh. fan put her hand up and said how dare you portray perry like that you know and you know what eric saywood said he didn't he didn't make any of the standard arguments oh you know it's a product of its time he said yeah you're right and i'm sorry for that and I, I found that stunning. Now, I don't know whether or not he should have apologised because there is undoubtedly some validity in the fact that 1980s television and stuff wasn't overly concerned with representing equality, right? It, it wasn't no, high on the no. priority list and it wasn't, you know, not just in Doctor Who, but practically anything uh, that, that was shown. Oh. It was extremely unusual to have that on the agenda. I'm not saying that's right. That's just the way it was. Mm. Do we, therefore, try and read stuff into that? Was, for example, the writers trying to say, you know, aside from the Doctor, there is nothing else of real interest here. Therefore, we're just going to use the companion to put the Doctor in certain situations where he's got to behave a certain way or he's got to talk a certain way. I'm not sure whether that was planned. I think it was something that probably just happened and therefore it's probably not a transmission of any kind of ideal. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, there is a, there is the moment in uh, in Hartnell's time. I think it's just after the chase where Doctor Who stops being an ensemble piece and becomes about the Doctor. Uh, and as soon as the show becomes about the Doctor, then the Doctor is separate to the audience. And so then he's and this again, this is an old argument. There has to be someone to represent the audience. Um, who Doctor? Why Doctor? How Doctor? What Doctor? Where Doctor? All of that stuff's going on because the Doctor knows, but he just needs he needs someone to ask those questions for us. I guess. Um, I think my my concern is that it just reinf- it reinforces that the person with all the answers is a guy um, and, and uh, without, uh, without wanting to, to without wanting to detonate a, a racially charged issue it's always some old white guy i remember seeing actually um, a conversation on gallifrey base that's another conversation um where a, where a person said they had shown uh, a picture of all i think it was, at the time it was all 10 doctors to a school friend and the school friend had said quote why are they all ugly and white <laughs> Well, because they're the same person, I suppose, is the answer to the latter. But mm. at, the sa- at the same time, that doesn't really work, given the uh, given the makeup of the show now. I, I, I think it's interesting. You, you talked about, basically, uh, an access point for the viewers. Yeah? Oh, yeah. That's and, the uh, companion, and the companion was... Yeah, I don't think it is so much these days, you know. Particularly post-Tenant, 
Because mm. I think the Doctor is the access point. He's so flipping human, you need the companions to be something a little bit more than just a what's that Doctor, who's that, where are we, you know, why are you doing that? That's mm. the reason why you do get strong companions, both male and female. Well, yeah, but has there ever really... Okay, let's, let's, let's... Here's a question. Has there ever actually been a strong companion? In, in audio, absolutely. But I'm thinking about TV. Sarah Jane, maybe... Donna but, Noble? Mm, okay, two. 50 years, two. All right, I'm liking that. I'm liking Donna. I'm I a big think, fan of Donna. You know I, I think I would go as far as to say Rose, certainly towards the end. God, no! She was so selfish, though. She, oh, she, she was very, very happy to mm. champion her own agenda. Oh, listen, listen, don't get me wrong. Great actor, um, but I'm not sure about the character. I think, is it, which story is it? Is it um, The Satan Pit? Where she starts talking about settling down and getting yes. a mortgage, and mortgages, it's like, yeah, 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 and I and I just thought, what show am I watching here? What's happening? <laughs> but I, I think, I mean, that particular scene it was was used to show how horrendously banal and boring, mm. you know, regular life would be, not only to the Doctor but to Rose as well, and they ended up laughing about that in that scene too. But you're right. I mean, it was. It was more a show about relationships, I suppose, and I've banged on about this in the past as mm. well. And I, I, I just think now, particularly, particularly in Tenants era and some of Smith's, I think the access point for the viewer is interchangeable. And I think it depends on how the story is written as, as, as to who you empathise with. And I think it's actually quite a strong argument as to why the Doctor could quite easily have an alien companion these days. Because you don't need someone from 20th century Earth anymore. You know, it's not necessary because the Doctor is, basically. <laughs> there are a couple of characters who sort of stood their ground. Ian, I think, when, when, when Doctor Who was an ensemble piece certainly stood his ground and actually, yeah. and, and actually pushed the old man backwards and forwards a little bit, which is great. Um, to a lesser extent, Jamie, I mean, because then again, you, but you've got a double act there. That's that's Fraser Hines and uh, Patrick Troughton <laughs> doing this amazing double act. Um, and I'm, I'm also quite interested to note that from between the Highlanders, and I think, is it is it is it not the moon base? I mean, um, a little after the moon base, maybe as far as the Macro Terra, Jamie stops being this credulous man from the Highlands with a, with a very high accent and becomes <laughs> one of the Beatles. <laughs> oh god well no that probably is the moon base to be honest with you and I, I saw that relatively recently and you know i think he kind of manages to do some foreshadowing of himself because he talks about rose he goes the piper the piper <laughs> very good very good no, i i think you're right i mean fraser hines character i don't think really came into being until just after the macro terror really when ben and polly disappeared and the the relationship with the doctor really really firmed up and i i think that i don't know it depends what kind of ideology they were trying to achieve that i just think they ended up reflecting how well those two actors got along you know the other side of the camera as well and yeah. all of a sudden the thing that you watch it for is the dynamic and it's it's the relationship it's it's very very ahead of its time really and it's a bit of a shame because it does slip back you know certainly when Terence Dix gets more involved the, mm. the, the companion does become far more the damsel in distress and you know and Terence Dix even to this day is very unapologetic for doing that because as far as he's concerned the doctor is there to save the day and it needs someone who's in danger to be to be rescued and as far as he's concerned that's what the doctor is is there for. And again, I was I was at an event a little while ago mm. when they were relaunching some of the books um, to celebrate the 
50th anniversary and Terence Dix's players was uh, was one of them and they were talking about the possibility of a female doctor <laughs> and uh, no, again they were, they were all being very careful lots of authors there Johnny Morris Gary Russell was mm. there uh, Steve Cole and the question was are we going to see a female doctor and nice <laughs> well, everybody was incredibly diplomatic, and I, I again, I can't remember who it was now, but one person in particular really championed the idea and said, of course we are, it's a wonderful idea. Hmm. Uh, you know, Moffat's talked about it, and Terence Dix looked at him and said, well, I bloody hope not on my... You know, yeah, yeah. Because as far as his concerns, his idea of Doctor Who is the correct one. I'm not saying that's wrong, but... But he's Terence he, Dix. <laughs> When I used to read those books as a child, I thought somehow Terence Dix was it had invented Doctor Who because that's all you would see. You'd see a little bit of Ian Martyr, mm. a bit of Malcolm Hulk, um, but mostly Terence Dix, Terence Dix, Terence Dix, Terence Dix. Um, so yeah, I, I, don't don't get me wrong. I think what we should always celebrate is that there is always the possibility. Um, there's always the possibility that there will be a female doctor. There's always the possibility that there will be um, a non-white doctor, um, but. Mm. We, I, but I wonder how long we must wait before we see that possibility I enacted. Wonder. I wonder. Um, I, I think we will see a non-Caucasian doctor, and I think that will happen. Uh, mm. And I think that will happen relatively quickly, and I don't see any reason why it shouldn't at all. Well, I, I think, well there, there isn't any reason anymore. It, it, it just works perfectly. The stories would work really, really well. I think the show would need to really go some to have a female doctor. I think it would need to change quite a bit and I think it would probably just change of its own volition if if, if they did cast uh, an actress or a, a female actor. Well, most of the t- well, most of the time, as we've seen in the recent in, in over, the, over the history of the show, it's mostly Scotsmen and Scousers. So fair enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You talk about ideology. Mm. One of the things that the show stands for is change, perpetual mm. change. Mm. And there is no need for things just to be one particular way because it's always been that way in the past. And I like that ideal personally. It's almost like one of those games where you know where you, where you, where you, pre- you put a, a marble in the top and the marble can go anywhere, yet it always comes out of the same one slot which says male doctor, <laughs> female companion, female companion is slightly smaller and asking yeah. questions. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right. There is a possibility for change um, and there is a possibility, but I, but I think that the change is essentially in the storytelling rather in the nature of the, rather than the nature of the characters. Yeah. Pace changes, but the characters stay pretty much the same. But I, 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 I'd listen to Tom Baker talking recently saying that no one's ever really failed in the role and he said this in front of Colin Baker, uh, Peter Davison <laughs> and Sylvester McCoy and it's like well yeah, no, there, there are people who have been more or less successful uh, <laughs> um, which, which is fair enough but, but, but again I, mean, I, I, I used to have an opinion about that and then I met Sylvester McCoy and it was like oh you're amazing um, and then I, <laughs> yeah. saw, then I saw Colin Baker in action um, and again, he was ast- he's just astonishingly good. I mean, I, and then we realised that these actors, some of them have passed away, and some, and but mo- but all of them have aged. Yeah. Um, perhaps that's you know, again. I mean, I'm not I'm not an idiot, although my recent behaviour might not suspe- might not support that. Um, <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I, I, I much prefer Tom Baker on audio because, as far as I'm concerned, he's still a 40 year old man with with a shock of brown hair. And I t- it, it, isn't it ironic though, Tom? Isn't it ironic because the reason you're probably liking those, I'm suspecting, is the same reason that I am too and it's because mm. it's incredibly nostalgic yeah. and nostalgia the whole concept of nostalgia is not known for the fact that you know it, 
being flexible or, or, or to change format. The reason why it's so familiar to us is because things haven't changed. It remains us of how things used to be. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's what Tom Baker does for me a lot of the time. And we are very fortunate as listeners and Doctor Who fans that Tom Baker's voice, yeah, it's a little bit gravelly, as you would expect, but it is basically the same as, as it was, <laughs> you know. And it is Saturday tea time for me. I mentioned I was watching Underworld and then I'm listening to the audios as well. And Louise Jameson is still just... Ooh, yes. Yeah, no, well, I'll tell you something. Louise Jameson, now, she, she really hasn't changed. And her performance is absolutely stunning. Possibly the best and, uh, actor of the lot, actually. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, I've got a lot of time for Louise Jameson anyway. Because, I mean, I've interviewed her on stage three times now. So uh, she's... Um, She's just a genuinely nice individual. And it, it's strange because she's got very strong views in terms of, you know, a woman's place in the industry today. Oh. In, you know, in much the same way that Janet Fielding has, it's just that they've got very different ways of making their views known. Whereas, Hi, Janet. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know she, she, Janet Fielding will go ahead and talk about it irrespective of what question you ask her, whereas Louise Jameson takes some time, thinks about it, and actually presents a valid case in some context, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I love hearing her talk. I can listen to Louise Jameson, you know, to the cows come home, and it's made me much more interested in her as a person as well, you know, She's she's writing some big finishes now. She's mm. I, I can't remember whether it's this current season or whether or not it's the next one that we hear a story that she's written for the fourth Doctor and Lena. Do you know, I, th- I think you're right. She was always a stronger character than well as as off screen than maybe um, which she was given credit for. I saw uh, an extra on a DVD where she was on the multicolored swap shop, huh. and to to Noel's credit, I think um, no, sorry, this is Noel Edmonds. So um, sorry, I should backtrack a little bit for anybody who doesn't know. Um, the multicolored swap shop was a TV show in the late seventies and early eighties. It ran for about three hours on a Saturday morning. It was very much a magazine show, um, and all over a period of years, not just three hours. Oh yes, over, over a period of years. Sorry. Um, so every Saturday for about three hours, for a number of years, you would have this. You'd have this show, um, and lots of Doctor Who stars went on. Lots of sports stars, and Louise Jameson is on, mm. is on one of these. Is on one of these, and Noel appears to be talking to her as if she's um, a, a light, a, a light-headed piece of fluff, um, and Louise. <laughs> isn't directly engaging with this and giving the sort of answers that she would give to anyone who was intelligent at a party it seemed and it's and there's a huge mismatch <laughs> between the questions she's being asked i think uh, in the spirit that they're being asked is, oh, so, oh which seems to but which seems to boil down to um a, a, a kind of a, a very sexist oh not very much skirt that you're wearing this weekend oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and she's coming back with some pr- with what i recognize now as some pretty intelligent answers and this is annoying the host yeah, because well, she's not playing <laughs> no and, and this this was louise jameson i think it took her a while to really find her feet and of course the the character of leela didn't actually assist they're talking about some kind of powerful woman and how do we empower her oh we'll take most of her clothes off you yeah. know it, 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 there's a big contradiction there and then you try and put her on a show that you know people will just make assumptions uh, about her and, and obviously totally incorrect and i'm so glad that we're able to speak to her you know 20 30 years on mm. and all of a sudden you it, it's so different i actually think tom baker would appreciate this irony or the full circle the most because they've been very open about how their relationship whilst making doctor who was extremely fractious and you know it, it wasn't pleasant and they didn't like each other louise has openly used fairly colorful metaphors to describe the way that tom was with her and now 
Tom Baker's going to be reading the words that she's given the fourth doctor. There is a certain symmetry and yeah. uh, correctness to that. And I'm certain it won't be lost on Tom Baker either. Oh, I, I doubt it. I mean, it, it, he's a, it, well, he's just such a huge part of, this, of, of our childhood. I, I like hearing his reflections as well. His reflections on the character are almost the antithesis of, of Patrick Troughton's. And as much as, as I understand it, Pat Troughton's agent was saying, listen, you can do so much better than being a children's hero. You need to get away from this. Uh, where, to, where, where Tom Baker seems to understand that actually this is the pinnacle of an actor's achievement. Um, and this, uh, to, you know, this is something which is a bit more personal to me as well. Actually, I'm thinking, you know, that you, you know, you're successful at what you do if you're a performer, if you will be given to the children, if 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 you can, if your work will be given mm. to children, mm. then there's something. It, I won't say inherently correct, but there's there, there, there is something very special about what you're doing so for tom baker to be able to um to, to hit the hearts of so many people was a good thing because apart from anything else they now employ him <laughs> yes, well, exactly but the, the, there was a huge snobbery or there was a huge snobbery around children's television and i know hartnell contended with it and, and again that's shown in an adventure in space and time you know it's always oh, it a kid's show kind of thing and i think you, you look at it now and again you know 21st century is very very different i know but you've got all the big stars giving their voices to children's programs these are you know the audience are going to be two three years old my, my daughter who's five now sits oh. there and watches something like um something quite bizarre frankly i mean she doesn't watch this anymore but it's a good example in the night garden which That's is frankly show. for an adult it's it's a psychedelic mess you feel like you're on some <laughs> kind of trip without having a single drop of <laughs> of, of an adventurous sub- substance at all and who who have you got voicing it derek jacoby nice and he hasn't just done three. He's done, well, it seems like hundreds. As a parent, it seems like hundreds of them. And he's just one. There's loads of others. And I, and I think that now bears out the confidence that Tom Baker had in being a, 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 a hero for children. It was perfectly valid. In fact, children are a really tough audience. They always have been. You know, you don't convince kids, then, you know, you, you can't be a credible actor, I don't think, anyway. So. Well, yeah, I think Christopher Eccleston said the same thing. You, you, mm. can't, you, can't, lie with, you can't lie to children because they'll just see straight through it. So, talking about the differing roles of companions, as we have been doing, this would seem to be a good opportunity to move on to the Creed of the Chromon, where Charlie has a very different role. Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish, sorting out the wheat from the chuff and nonsense, saving you money on the ones that are not so good. This week we're looking at Creed of the Cromon, the second of the divergent universe stories. And the Doctor and Charlie have to deal with a bit of an insect infestation. They're not like us. Oh, giant Isoptera. Isoptera? Oh, and... Termites, to be more precise. Go on. They have big heads with antennae, horns, mouths that can tear you... Sacks of poison in their throat to sting or kill. They sound delightful. Can't wait to meet them. It looks like we're starting to see a story arc develop in that uh, they left the the horrible sensory deprivation experience of Scherzo and passed through an interzone 
into a new zone. Now, this zone that they find themselves in is a desert world.、Uh, they find that it is a world that has been invaded by the Croman, who are an insectoid species, and they've enslaved the the native race. And you know, I I actually. Enjoyed this one.、Uh, it's a little odd. Still, there's kind of this strangeness so far in this divergent universe, which is a little hard to、uh, to settle in with. But maybe it was in contrast to to the bare bones of the previous one. I liked the world that they found themselves in here. I found it interesting to learn about the culture of、uh, the Croman and their、uh, kind of hive mind in a way. They they represent、uh, the worst of. Corporate bureaucracy in the way that they're managing the、uh, the inhabitants of the world they've taken over.、Uh, I found the kind of chameleon, almost reptilian race, which inhabit this Utermes zone,、uh, to be interesting. And then there's a third race with a character that I really enjoyed, an Orug, who's kind of a, a, a large, sentient mole type creature that. That becomes important, and I, I did enjoy the story and meeting these these creatures. It took me a little while to get into this one because the setting, this all this interzone and a zone piece, which isn't really explained, it just kind of happens,、uh, led me to think I was in another abstract universe, like in Scherzo. And it took me a little while to realise that actually this is a pretty standard revolution against the evil master story. You know, it's, it's a Doctor Who trope.、Uh, in fact, it's quite reminiscent of a lot of classic stories. Uh, particularly, I thought the sort of、uh, the, the fifth and sixth Doctor era,、uh, with its sort of heavy-handed allusion to big business corporate culture, very reminiscent of Vengeance and Varos, which is hardly surprising, as it was written by the same author、uh, and had some quite similar audio cues as well. I found it hard to take seriously、uh, after a while because the, the, the metaphors they're using are quite crude and simplistic, and also very British in the example of corporate culture that it's parodying. But that makes no sense at all. In this, not only are we in a far distant land, we're in a completely different universe with totally different rules, and the idea that they're sort of aping the, the tropes of British business seemed very, very strange to me. Maybe it's explained further into the divergent universe. I don't know, but it didn't add up to me. Bring the accused. Oh, there's no need to push. We were walking in by ourselves. Thank you. Be silent. You stand before the directorate. Oh, hello. Are we on trial? Quiet. We are reviewing the case. <laughs> There are forms to fill out, questionnaires to answer. You will remain still. I'm sorry. I forgot about your obsession with creating systems of management. Everything must be discussed, decided, then implemented. Yes. This inquiry has come to order. Interesting. I didn't. Catch on that it was a particularly British corporate structure, and I actually, while there is humor in it, it is satire. That's for sure. I didn't feel that it treads so far that it was spoof and 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 unbelievable. We talked in Scherzo about some really horrific、uh, scenes that come here.、Uh, one of the things these insects are doing are taking some of the the natives and turning them into hybrid queens. Uh, to be the、uh, the egg producers, really the larva producers of the next generation of Croman, and you get kind of walked through that transformation process, which is probably one of the more horrific things that I've listened to in a Big Finish story. There's an unsettling feel, kind of tone to this one that I think worked for it. I I don't think this is a great story, but、uh, this is one where I found myself wanting to listen, curious about what would happen in the next episode. Yeah, I I thought that the Horrific elements sat oddly with the more almost zany parody bits. Some some of the jokes in the parodies are a little bit obvious and、uh, and silly, 
and to then go straight into body horror I found to be a little bit jarring. Um, it's okay. It's a it's an average Doctor Who story with some sort of fairly familiar themes going on. I think it's undermined by the ongoing weirdness of this Divergent Universe backstory, which I still don't really understand. That there was never a proper introduction to the Divergent Universe. We've never really had it properly explained where they are, how they got there, or why. And I find it's difficult to therefore engage with how they're moving from story to story. But maybe it'll get resolved as we go along. So we're halfway through series three. Let's see if uh, the remainder of the Divergent Universe arc um, raises the standard a little bit. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Michelle. James, this is called the Divergent Universe. Yes, yeah. And yeah. from what I can work out, the Eighth Doctor and Charlie are utterly divergent from their characters too. I don't like them. I've never, I've never, I've never been mad keen on Charlie. Yeah, um, I know you've said that in the past. But, oh, uh, good lord! It's kind of, it's quite, I grew up around women like him. It's like, oh god! I've I, I, I was going to say, I well, I, I didn't know that, but I, I thought the reason that you wouldn't have liked Charlie so much is because I know how much you like Lucy Miller. Oh, she's amazing! Well, she's you know chalk and cheese, and they've done really, really well at having oh. very, very different companions. But I do like Charlie, and I like Lucy. I like the pair of them. And oh, she's amazing! I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, I think India Fisher does a, a, a fantastic job, and they're just about to release some Charlie Pollard's special plays, aren't they? I think there's a box set that's on its way out very very soon. Yeah, I, I don't know, but given the, the, there's something about her. There's there's just something so snotty, slightly removed, and wanting to snog the doctors. Oh, look, come on! I'd rather have Lucy. Lucy I'd rather have Lucy Miller. Mm. Far, far funnier. Do you know? I, I gave myself the treat of listening to the whole Lucy Miller arc um, at the end of last year, and uh, which that, that was my fiftieth anniversary celebration. <laughs> and it was oh, it was, it was fantastic. There is some actual character development, right? As opposed to some sno- some snobby girl from the home counties. Don't, don't get me wrong. I know she works. India Fisher's a wonderful woman. It's a she plays what's written but there's something but the character just seems well the word is there divergent universe divergent character <laughs> it, it, it depends I mean it's, it, there's two things there one I, I really like Charlie and I love the development that the, the, the character or the part, development path that she, she follows and of course at that point there wasn't an alternative it was Eighth Doctor and Charlie you know um, I couldn't just go and listen to, to, to Lucy Miller instead even if I had been able to I think I would have still appreciated Charlie and She's capable of some incredible subtleties and, and because she is essentially from an upper class background, mm. she's able to portray a very unique story. And of course, with the Eighth Doctor, that's precisely what they wanted. But you're also quite right. The second point you're, about them changing character almost in this divergent universe. Mm. I mean, I, I think the whole thing is that time isn't supposed to exist, which is ludicrous because it clearly does. The play lasts two hours. It takes time to listen to. Things happen in a chronological order. So it was only two hours? <laughs> it does feel a bit longer. I know what you mean. Oh. But um, yeah, I, I think Kerry's introduction is is interesting, but this, this story wasn't one of, of, of my favourites either. I, I am impressed by the way that her arc resolves inside Big Finish mm. um, because that is very unique and very clever. The Sixth Doctor, um, you, you mean? Well, the thing is, they, they, be, we, we have to be careful. Not a spoiler. She's on the cover of <laughs> of the CDs with Colin Baker. True. Well, okay. Yeah, fair play. Um, but but okay. We, we can be we can be quiet about how it happens, I suppose. Um, and that's amazing and interesting because it does subvert this idea that the Doctor's all powerful. That's fantastic. Um, but there's just something about it. I mean, it, 
I think I mentioned this before. There's a moment in um, Pyramids of Mars, which is without doubt my favourite, 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 favourite Doctor Who story, where if your suspension of disbelief fails, it's just two scousers arguing about something in a freezer centre. <laughs> and the same, the same thing is true with, um, with India Fisher and Paul McGann. It just becomes well, two toffs moaning about something over their pims. It's like, oh. Well, well you, you've, you've now added uh, an extra line to our schedule, Tom. We are discussing the Pyramids of Mars. Uh, oh, good. Without a shadow of a doubt I want to have I'm that in. conversation about the uh, the freezer sensor yes in a bit more depth <laughs> in a bit <laughs> we've got more time for it <laughs> right I think that's probably about it so I think if you allow Tom and me just to carry on talking then <laughs> We'll have we'll have the longest podcast ever. Yeah. Uh, one final thing that we must do: we must decide what is going to feature in part three of our regenerations series next week. Now, Tom, you mentioned last week. I think it was the tenth planet, time and the Rani, and the war games. And I'm not quite sure yeah. how many of those actually made the final edit. Now, I can't remember. But um, do you have a particular choice, or do you have a uh, do you have a well, preference for a regeneration story next? Um. Well, war games. I'm not sure that it would be fair to try and impose my war games opinion on on what people might want to decide. War games, but you know, if 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 I was able to choose war games, if I was able to choose, then I might think of something like the case of Andrazani war games. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, I mean, and it's not really a spoiler, despite the fact we're going to be talking about these uh, stories in a bit more more detail. There's only two regeneration stories that I'm really that fond of, and Caves is <laughs> one. And, and even then, I think it's incredibly dark, and the War Games is the other. The rest of them, you know, I, I don't dislike them, but I'm not necessarily, you know, a big fan of them either. So uh, we shall see. With things like Planet of the Spiders, you forgive it because it's a regeneration story. That's the, and, and I think the same same thing with the End of Time. Um, the only one which really so leapt and danced and sang um, was Parting of the Ways. I, I think maybe because it was the yes. first one of the new series. Yes. Yes, yes. It, it and there's something. I, th- I think at that point, Eccleston remembers he's an actor, <laughs> um, and actually does it. Do you know? I mean, actually does You're it. You're right. That is quite a powerful little sequence. And I remember watching it at the time. Not not just getting caught up with the with the fact that, that it was a regeneration and the doctor was leaving, but I got caught up with the emotional drama of it as well. Uh, yeah. that's 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 quite an achievement for me to actually <laughs> invest emotionally in anything I see on telly these days. So uh, yeah, anyway, but that that's a conversation that we're going to need when we get round to discussing parting other ways, which you never know, listeners. If that's what you suggested that we talk about, maybe that's what we'll be talking about next week. But uh, but you still got a chance. Get get your suggestions to us. Feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast dot com. Mm, definitely. Although that said, that said, that said, that said. Um, Time of the Doctor. I, 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 oh, I, it was it was kind of profound. Um, I, I did see someone very unkindly saying, "Oh, what's what's going to happen in this episode if Stephen Moffat makes you cry?" Didn't make me cry. Well, actually, it did, but not for emotional reason. <laughs> Are you kidding? How could you? Not oh, I was that? I was more crying through depression by the end of it. It was uh, for all of the reasons actually <gasps> that Stephen talked about look, why he didn't like Legopolis. You know, I, I, I thought I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to my doctor, my 11th doctor, because we had some stage set up for Matt Smith to demonstrate how fantastic an actor he is, rather than actually bid farewell to a, an entire 
influential era we, we we just got him all aged up again and from that point on it was bleh, no but here's the but here's the thing you know that there is um there's there's a narrative device set up there to give you several hundred years worth of storytelling in and, about uh, half an hour and you're supposed to swallow it completely no 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 no. you're supposed to wait you're supposed to wait for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years to hear that entire game game of thrones style story <laughs> that's going on there every enemy he's ever had while he's under while he's over a little while he's living in midsummer <laughs> wooden cybermen was the pinnacle for me tom that was well it. it could be argued that the cybermen have always been slightly wooden <laughs> <laughs> depending on who played them yes it could be argued <laughs> that's a nice point and very well made anyway tom we really gotta say goodbye yes well we've reached the end of our um trip into the past and the present and the future um so yes th- james a pleasure always a pleasure um Perhaps we can do this again sometime. Absolutely, we will. Right. Well, listeners, of course, um, you know that you have access to the DWP forums. Um, uh, many of us go there and many of us lurk. So if you have any comments or if you have any opinions and if you have any ideas for the coming shows, then fab. Um, it would be nice for us to win a Hugo Award next year. So give us some ideas and we'll actually do some work. See you in a bit. <laughs> Cheers. Bye for now, everybody. You've been listening to a quite highbrow episode of the Doctor Who podcast, brought to you this week by Tom and James. I had a hard time keeping up this week, guys. By the time I opened up the Wikipedia page to find out what you were talking about, you'd moved on to a different topic, and any words I did understand sounded like swear words. Well done, guys. You can check out more episodes of the show at thedoctorwhopodcast.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or drop by the Doctor Who podcast forums and philosophise with the boys. Thanks for listening. See you later.